0: Well, hello, ladies and ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode, episode, episode 78 of the Jake This, of Jake Johansson Podcast. I'm Jake Johansson, remember? <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. Hey, thanks for listening. I'm in New York City right now because I just finished my weekend at Gotham Comedy Club. Thank you, all the people who came out to those shows and who might now be listening to the podcast. It was a great time, in spite by the fact that I flew in... On Big Blizzard Day, the mayor was on TV the next day. They closed schools. People were not even supposed to go out sledding with their children. But some of you people who are listening to this came to the show on that night in direct defiance of the mayor of your city. And I really appreciate that kind of insubordination. And, um, if you are listening to this and you have not been out to see a show and you live in Canada, here's, there's another opportunity for you to come out in the snow because I'm going to be in Edmonton, Canada, January 23 through 26. And this is 2013. I'm telling you about shows in 2013 If or 14. Oh my God. I can't believe it's already 2014 and I'm still saying to 2013 on my podcast. Can you believe it? Um, so, you can come out to these shows, Edmonton, Canada, January 23 through 26. I know you were all sad. Oh, he's telling me about shows I can't go to because they're in 2013 and that's over. But I was wrong about that. Mistakes, accidents happen, and all all is forgiven, I hope, between us, at least as far as these calendar mistakes. But let's get on with me telling you where I'm going. January 23 through 26, how many times have I said it? A lot. More than you need it. I know. I know. It's me. It's not you. It's me. Edmonton, Canada, I'm going to be at the comic strip in the Bourbon Street uh, area of the West Edmonton Mall. There's a street inside of the mall. That's how big this mall is. People who don't know about the Edmonton, Canada comic strip. Anyway, I'll see you out there. When when are the dates again? January 23 through 26. Then, January 29 through February 1, I'll be in Addison, Texas at... uh, the Addison Improv, January 29th to February 1st, and then February 13th to 16th, PS. Valentine's Day is contained within those dates. I'll be in Columbus, Ohio at the Funny Bone. So why don't you do yourself a favor and get a big Valentine's-shaped box of chocolates and come out and let's let's eat it together after the show with your sweetheart. Um, February 19th to 22, I'll be back in Texas in Austin at the Cap City Comedy Club, and that is going to be fun, and I need you to come to that. If you live in Texas, I mean go. If you live in Texas, it's a lot of Texas. It's a lot of me in Texas this year. Family. We they don't like to go to Texas, but I love going to Texas. Um, and not for any kind of related reason And I, I don't want that to sound like I'm some kind of a terrible monster. I think that might've, I'm the only one who's interpreting that that way. Let's face it. I don't believe that it. it's not you. It's me. Anyway, I've been having a great time in New York. I flew in on this blizzard day. I, w- I already got upgraded to, um, business class from coach. <laughs> and then I got upgraded from my, bu- I was in my business class seat and the stewardess came up and said, or the flight attendant, whatever they want to be called. I'm not sure, but it was a lady. So stewardess, it wasn't a man stewardess. I don't, I don't think you can call men. I think they're just flight. Att- they're all really flight attendants. That's what they like to be called, but let's face it. I think, you know what I meant when I said stewardess, uh, and nothing personal, no offense to really women any, everywhere or anywhere. Uh, so, she comes up and she says, "Hey, you can uh, you can go up and sit in first class, complimentary." So there's a little tiny first class. There's something. There's always my point is there's always whatever you're getting that you think is the best. There's always something a little bit better that somebody's keeping secret from you. And so I go up to first class. I sit down. And people are still getting on the plane. There's, there's the seat next to me is empty, and this lady comes in and sits down. An older lady, and I think that looks like Angela Lansbury, and it was Angela Lansbury because then one of the other steward steward i it was again a female steward i comes over and says to her hey i'm a big fan of your show I, like, I don't know if people really are a big fan murder she wrote was on a million years ago and i couldn't really say that i was a big fan of that show what am i gonna say hey i loved you in the manchurian candidate that's what i should have said but i didn't say that i just said hello i didn't I I wasn't really pretending that I didn't know her, but I was kind of just being, you know, you don't want to sit on a plane and then have some creepy dude. Not that I'm a creepy dude, but you don't need a guy. She doesn't know that. She does not know I'm not a creepy dude. And you should remember that out there, non-creepy people, that people don't know that you're not a creepy person. You have to prove that to them when you're first meeting them because people immediately want to put you in the creepy dude category. Sometimes even if you're a lady, that's the world that we live in now, you know in terms of uh, you can't judge people by their gender. And so ladies can now be creepy dudes. So congratulations, ladies, and welcome aboard. So I am trying to not be a creepy dude and just sit next to her. We are having a little bit of a conversation about the blizzard and are we going to be late and how are we going to get from the airport to the hotel because it's going to snow and all the flights after me. Um, it turned out we're canceled, but we fly all the way, and then I start to feel good. They give you an omelet. When you're sitting in first class, let me tell you something. The omelet that you usually get on the plane, an omelet, we use that term loosely. An omelet is something that when you make for yourself at home is one thing, or when you get it at a restaurant is one thing. But When you get an omelet on a plane, usually it's some fluffed up eggs that someone has cooked at a third location, and then it's been brought to the airport, and now you're eating it on the airplane after it's been heated up in a box in some part of the plane that no um, customers have ever seen. But this omelet that you get when you're in first class and you're sitting next to Angela Lansbury tastes like an omelet. It tastes like i mean i wanted to go up there and congratulate whoever cooked it in a pan it tastes like someone made it in a pan but i couldn't see where the pan was but anyway it was a delicious omelet and i did feel i did feel slightly like a creepy dude because angela lansbury is next to me learning french or whatever she was doing and uh, i was trying not to observe too much but i think she did have some french language something or other and i was watching <laughs> i was watching the uh, wolverine episode of the x men on the little um, samsung tablet thing full of movies that they give you when you're in first class, so I'm, w- I'm watching this ridiculous uh, action movie where people are being eviscerated and disemboweled right next to um, the, a sweet older lady um, royalty of theater and movies, and that's what I did, but you know what, I'm in first class too, Angela Lansbury, and I've got to do what I've got to do, and that's watch whatever action movie I want on that iPad thing because I've learned better. I can't, you can't watch the tearjerker thing on the plane because you're going to cry. They decrease the amount of oxygen in there and you can't control your emotions on an airplane. I've learned this about myself. At least you can't control your, your weepy, um, you know, joie de vivre emotions. You can, I've never really felt an uncontrollable rage on an airplane or like those people who get up and, and, you know, crap on the, beverage cart. I've never, I've never felt like I wanted to do that on the plane, but obviously people do have those emotions. Those are not out of control for me. For me, it's more of a kind of a weepy kind of sadness, uh, you know, hormone imbalance thing that can happen. If I watch, if I watch one of those weepy movies, I'm not watching anything about orphans or, you know, children getting hurt or recovering even from illness because I'll lose it on the plane. That would be worse. Me crying next to Angela Lansbury would be worse than me watching some guy flick where, um, Anyway, let's face it, um, what's-his-name uh, Hugh Jackman takes his shirt off, so that's that's a thrill for Angela Lansbury if she looks over. She probably wasn't going to watch that movie on her own. Anyway, so uh, that, I did that. I did that. I flew here to New York City, I watched that movie, I've been editing my new special all day today, which is the day before this comes out, and I have to say, I'm happy with how it looks. I hate having my picture taken, and I hate watching myself on videotape, but I feel like... This one is going to be alright. It's gonna be alright. I'm happy about it. I'm excited for you to watch it at some point in the future when when that's possible, when it gets when I get it. I'm gonna first I'm gonna put it in the can and then I'm gonna I'm gonna deliver it to you in the can. Or you'll probably watch it on the internet, let's face it. This thing is going to be great on your phone. I'm so looking forward to you watching this on your phone or your new watch, your watch TV that's Bluetooth linked to your phone. You'll be able to catch this, catch it, catch my new special on your Google Glasses or um, or really anything with a screen. Catch it, catch my new special on the uh, clock on your microwave. That's where I'm going, to re- I'm going to release my special first on microwave clocks and then it will also be um, available on your coffee maker as well. You'll be, you'll be able to watch it on your coffee maker. So I'm super excited about the technology of this thing. I really, uh, have to say that I'm using the theme song from the podcast as the song for the special and the opening credits. Thank you. Dr. Jim Rains. look unbelievably hilarious and they make me happy and I hope they'll make you happy. So anyway, I've been editing the special. I've been having a great visit to New York city. My friend, uh, Dora Militaru is, uh, producing and directed the special uh, we're you know we're collaborating on this and it's been great hanging out with her I'm hoping to have her as a guest on the podcast at some point in the future but this week's guest is my longtime friend Evan Elkin or should I say Dr. Evan Elkin I know a couple of doc- Dr. Jim Rains, thank you and this is my friend Dr. Evan Elkin who I've known a little longer than my friend Dr. Jim Rains. he's not a musician but he is a, a doctor of psycho, psycho psychology, psycho, not psych, psychology, psychi- and it's not psychiatry. He's not a psychiatrist. He does not, he can't get you a hookup for drugs, which, and believe me, I've asked at times in the past, not recently, but, uh, He is a a psychologist, and he's a great friend. He's got a great sense of humor. And we did kind of, in this conversation, I ended up talking to him about his job working with uh, troubled youths here in New York City. And believe me, he's a a really funny guy with a great sense of humor, but I kind of got him on his serious topic of the way he's made his living and, and where his heart comes from. And so this is kind of a serious conversation. I felt like it was very informative because he, I learned things about, uh, about him and his job that I hadn't known or realized, even though we've been friends for, you know, 25 plus years so i hope you enjoy this conversation i enjoyed this conversation so without further ado please welcome you know i don't i think it's fine if you want to applaud now if you're on the treadmill crank it up and get ready to put your hands together for my friend dr evan elkin Here we are, on the pod... This is... You're, right, you're on the podcast now, Evan.
1: This is, we're doing it now? This is... Yeah, this is it. Oh, thank you.
0: If you wouldn't... You don't have to speak super loudly, but uh, if you could speak loudly enough that this tiny thing can hear you.
1: Okay. Is it recording us now?
0: It's recording us now. Cool. It's on. It's begun. It's begun its work. Oh, wow, okay. It's terrible work. Are I can we, cut this part out Are we I, almost done? <laughs> we, yes, in fact, we are. Okay, I think you'll be surprised at how quickly it's finished and over and you <laughs> can painlessly <laughs> resume.
1: Feel a little bit of pressure.
0: Your other activities. You shouldn't feel pressure. If you have
1: you listened to my podcast before? I have not. Oh, I should say yes, I have, because you're my friend. But, but no, you would I be. Haven't.
0: But you would be lying, and I would be able to figure it out. You, how would you know? Yeah. How would I know that you were lying? I do I have a tell? I'd start to ask you little questions about things that have happened mm-hmm. on the podcast, and you wouldn't know the answer. Okay. And then, uh, so you
1: remember all the things?
0: I remember enough of the things, and considering that you know zero of the things. <laughs> I feel like it'd be pretty quick for me to catch you. you You've got the the math all worked out. What's the name of the guy who I've done most of the episodes of the podcast with? Jake Johansson. (laughs) 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 Well, technically, that's right. It makes me. It so makes far, me. How am I doing? Anyway, you're doing great. <laughs> okay. You're doing great. We've been. How, wait. How do I? I know you from 19. Anyway, we're friends for a long time.
1: 1983.
0: From 1983. Yeah. Because we had girlfriends. We had that girlfriends were back then.
1: That's the last time we had girlfriends.
0: And they. Yeah. Well, now we have
1: wives. Our girlfriends there. were friends. Mm-hmm. And then we became friends. And now and we and have the wives. Went away. Yeah. We've been through a lot of girlfriends. I don't. My wife <laughs>
0: does listen from time to time. So. <laughs> I don't always like to okay, we like to confess that, to that, but that was at a time when you had. What was your
1: degree that you had at that time? What were your, What was your job? Well, I, I was in. Uh, well, you met me in college. I was at UC Berkeley. I thought you
0: were done. I thought you were done with the undergraduate. graduate.
1: I think I was just finishing that shit up, and then uh, and then I went to grad school at NYU in the field of clinical psychology.
0: That's in, New York University.
1: For those of you who don't who don't know, you know
0: and don't you speak graduate. so softly. I'm almost a little they bit... They trained
1: me to do that. That's what you learn in clinical psych school, is to speak in a soothing and yet probing kind of manner.
0: It makes the man tiger
1: relax. <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah, that's... I was training to be a psychologist and only did that for a minute. Well, I thought you were a psychologist, and then... But, uh, well, what do you... Th- I mean, I, I trained to do kind of research and clinical work and therapy and having people come to my office and whine and complain about about not being able to actualize themselves in spite of their great riches and and privilege. And I just decided I didn't want to do that, and I veered into a whole different career.
0: I I, almost, I I often feel that way when I'm in there complaining about my failure to actualize myself in spite of my great fame and riches. I often feel like <laughs> right. am I just dumping money into a hole that this person has graciously opened for me yes, to dump my want. money into? I'm sorry, but yes, you are. Because it really is just kind of sanctioned whining. I mean, not that therapy is, therapy is great in the sense that it's nice to have someone who you can just tell your problems to, and they will kind of... <laughs> they will say nothing. <laughs> they'll just sort of absorb them like a sponge, unlike your fucking friends right. who are constantly... Who
1: immediately jump in with advice and judgment and... Right. ...to solve your problems with you and for you. Now, there is something nice about the uh, the space that a therapist gives you to... You know, kind of confront yourself and figure shit out, and it does. It at least comes off as sort of supportive and unconditional openness and listening. I think most of the time it is, but obviously, if you want to be s- cynical about my field, um, it really is like paying a lot of money for someone to say very little in a room with you, and you can, you know, do do with your thoughts what you want, and then.
0: Well, I would say, yes, that's cynical, but also it's sort of um, a sad commentary on the way the world works and we interact with each other as human beings in general because it's, in my mind, it, I'm, I'm, it's not cheap to have that experience with another person, <laughs> no, on a, with a the therapist, yeah. but you pay it because you can't really it's hard we don't create a world where we can sit down with our friend and say hey let me why don't you let me talk let me tell you all my shit for an hour mm-hmm. and just kind of listen and be supportive and just stay out of my way and then I'll trade you and then you can do the same with me we don't we don't have kind of friendships no, like tru- that.
1: It's true. I mean, even even with really good friends, and I have I have several of them, and you're one of them. And to really reach the kind of deep level of trust where you can really let your hair down and, and say something uh, without fear that someone's going to judge you is it's a it's a very valuable thing. I mean, it's just uh, there's you know we we bury ourselves in kind of stigma and sort of the the weight of. Of self judgment, and it's it's very hard to find a moment to just open up to someone else and get stuff off your chest, work things out, give yourself a little wiggle room um, to let yourself figure something out without beating the crap out of yourself over something. So yeah, I I do think that therapy is valuable, and I'm obviously coming at this from a particular lens because I know I know this the, this part of the story is that my career veered into trying to help people who are people who are not of privilege, who typically are not thought of as you know, having the luxury to sit and talk about their problems because they're so kind of embroiled in them and they're so complicated.
0: Well, or they might love to be able to do that, but they don't have the financial means to do it because, I mean, to suck up a post trained professional's time is not something that someone who has a regular... Job can afford. I mean, that's just not in their. That's, that's not no. in their budget. No, it know? is
1: definitely a privilege issue. And, and as you know, but people listening to this podcast don't know. I my career veered into working with folks who are caught up in systems like the criminal justice system. People, who yeah. People who maybe because of pro- problems of the kind, you know, s- stress, trauma, depression, the kinds of things that get caught early with people for people who have bucks and get counseling and sort of intervene early and we retrack our lives early. Um, Folks of a certain socioeconomic class get pretty deep into some systems um, as their lives kind of spin out of control and poverty bears down on them and they may commit crimes, behaviors get interpreted in a certain way because of the color of your skin when you're a kid and you end up arrested instead of reprimanded and... You know, sort of, you know, your parents called in and talked to, if you're a white kid, if you're a black kid, you're suspended. And so I dedicated my my career and skill to working with those people who can't, mm-hmm. can't afford treatment.
0: Right, right. I, I I thought it was pretty great. And I have always all this time thought of you as, as still participating in that day-to-day interaction but i do understand after over the last couple years i've kind of gotten clarification that you're kind of administrating the people who are doing yeah the face-to-face
1: yeah i think there's a you know there's you get enough sort of gray hair in your in your beard and you know get enough salt and pepper hair where eventually your your career goes in a direction where you 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 know by virtue of how long you've been doing it you have something to teach other people and so Mm -hmm. i've been kind of designing programs and developing strategies and policy for government and teaching people and doing that kind of thing. That's sort of where I've, you know, I'm, I miss the day-to-day doing, you know, therapy, having clients. And
0: Well, talk a little bit about, about your job, because I was kind of really interested to hear as your friend about how society is really or at least this, um, whatever you call it, uh, bureaucracy that you were working <laughs> with, how they were really trying to help people you know because i feel like people can get very cynical about the criminal justice system and disadvantaged youth and you know just lock them up and throw away the key but you were really trying to uh, get in there and advocate and help
1: well well there's been you know I've, i've been part of and i was fortunate enough to be around right when the pendulum was swinging kind of in a good direction um, this thing we call a juvenile justice system, which is the kind of the kid version of what we think of as the criminal justice system—the courts, being on probation, being in prison—all of those kinds of things, all kind of tied together, is referred to as the criminal justice system. There's a kiddy version of that, and um, and in in its early conception, it was really thought of as more of a social work endeavor. The creation of uh, family court was really about taking a kid who's showing some behavioral problems, even committing crimes and sitting down with the kid, the family, the other stakeholders in their lives, like the teachers and the clergy, whoever whoever know this person, you know, often with a judge because they might have done something wrong, and problem solving and figuring out, what can we do in the best interest of this kid and family in the least restrictive way? Let's not jump to this kid needs to be sent somewhere. Usually it's upstate, four hours from the city that they're from. So To a like, detention to a facility. detention facility, something like that. So in its original... Charter, the idea of family court was so that we didn't have a mini criminal justice system for kids. Um, And somehow in the 70s and 80s, it began to get kind of perverted and it was unexpected. A lot of people thought that the infrastructure was being built to create a fair social work type environment so that people, To help
0: people to, avoid the criminal justice exactly. system instead of kind of like the prep school for the criminal justice exactly, system,
1: Exactly, which is what it became So, so sociologists and criminologists and, and those folks who study this and are a lot smarter than me on the subject We're kind of surprised, in retrospect, looking at the turn that things took in the 70s and 80s toward um, one of the most incarcerative, restrictive, and punitive systems imaginable, even worse than some of the adult criminal systems. Really? Because of the the structure of family court was such that you didn't really need as much evidence to make a major decision about restricting a person's freedom. That it was really about the sense that the judge had in this paternalistic way about whether the...
0: And the intention was that people would, that those judges would act in good faith to try and help the kids as opposed to act in in like, look, I've got control and I'm going to lock away this.
1: Yeah, And and many judge, to their credit, I know many family court judges to this day, and I think that some of the issue is not that they are you know, that they took the power to make these kinds of decisions and used it um, for restricting rather than creating the kinds of services that allowed for the freedoms that the rest of us have. But that what we discovered in my part of the story, which was working in from the late 90s through the 2000s in this field, is that without the kinds of resources and without a raised consciousness about uh, how poverty and trauma, and race play into this story um that we didn't have the right alternatives and options and resources to help folks avoid the system so that if you were a judge sitting in you know with a docket of 30 kids coming in having been you know arrested for something violent or a robbery or something you had little opportunity to ask the right questions of this family like you know, how did this happen? There was not a lot of asking of why. Um, and there were not a lot of, you know, sort of, well, we have three or four good options we can offer you. We have, you know, has, has he figured out what he wants to do vocationally? Let's, let's maybe, if he volunteers and gets a mentor, help get inspired to start getting his act together. Those kinds of questions and assessments were not being done. It was a very knee-jerk reaction. We don't have anything for you. Your kid has behaved badly. Now this is the third time we've seen him in court. We're going to have to send him away. And so,
0: and talk talk about how you were talking about race and economics and all of that. How that played in to allow this bad situation to happen?
1: Well, <clears throat> sort of looking at my own, you know, past as an adolescent, um, came from a privileged, you know, upper middle class background. Professor father, television producer mom nice suburb in upstate new york whatever i kind of wanted to do if i wanted to play the guitar you know within within weeks a guitar materialized i mean i had to whine and beg and
0: you know, it's f- funny it's funny because i feel that way about my childhood you know i had a dad who was an engineer went on to be a corporate um vice president and my mother w- had the luxury of being just a mom and and being able to take care of us and take care of our house and our needs and our emotional life and I didn't ever ever think of that as being some kind of special or privileged thing you know that thing that they used to say about George W. Bush like he was born on third and he thought he hit a triple I feel like in some sense a lot of us you know fortunate Caucasian people, I guess, because I'm a Caucasian, we're both Caucasian people. We're we're almost in denial about how how lucky, the the luck, just the starting off where we got to start off Mm -hmm. is.
1: Well, some of it is contextual and I honestly didn't begin to reflect in certain ways that I do now about my own childhood and adolescence until I started working um, in inner cities with, with the populations of folks that we're talking about right now. So... So, you know, with the background we both just described of, you know, I had the instinct to learn something somehow through my dad's networks. He knew somebody who with whom I could do an internship. I wanted to try this. And so I had a lot of exposure to stuff to do. So one of, one of the things is I had an enriched upbringing, which I think mm-hmm. is really absent from, from the inner city. I, had, I felt from the very beginning that I had a lot of options. And I think that with the percentage of African-American men that are incarcerated, it's very likely that as a young person, you have to be feeling like you have a nagging kind of uh, sort of shadow hanging over you, that it's, it's possible, whether you know the stats, as a young person or not, you probably know two uncles, maybe your dad. It's very likely you've got incarcerated male family members. And you've got to be thinking, I wonder if this is what my future is about and you see yourself getting stopped and frisked on the street by police left and right, there isn't a black kid in New York City who hasn't been randomly stopped and frisked and questioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, So it's a very different view of future, and it's a very different view of what is possible and who you are. It's a narrowed scope of who you think you can possibly be, and that kind of thing just brings about a sort of an internal and an external rebellion. Um, So I think that's one of the ways that race plays into the story, and the other is just the way the system relates to families. I, I did a couple of things as an adolescent that were, you know, to me and to the people who responded to it, just acts of adolescent mischief. I jumped in a Greyhound bus with a bunch of my friends. I was behind the the wheel, and I drove. I drove this bus about five miles down the highway. You um, jumped in a Greyhound bus and drove it five miles. How old were you? I was uh, sixteen, seventeen. Was it now just for
0: our listeners? Was it
1: hard <laughs> to get the bus started? I mean, if was, you have a basic, basic knowledge of driving think a cluster. I statute could you, of limitations on this yeah. has run out, so I think we're okay. Um, it was idling, sitting behind a coffee shop, and I think the driver, it was late at night, and we were out kind of doing what adolescents do late at night.
0: Was there alcohol involved?
1: It's possible. Uh-huh. So, um, and I think this guy was about to, he was returning from whatever run, I don't know. So the know. bus was empty? The bus was empty. The driver was getting a cup of coffee at a coffee shop, and it was behind the bus station. He was about to make the big u around and park the bus, and that was probably the end of his night. Where, where in the U.S. was this? Um, this was in the state of Vermont. Vermont. Uh-huh. So you jump in the bus? I jumped in the bus, and my friends piled in behind me. I was in the driver's seat, and I somehow figured out how to put it into gear. And uh-huh. and pretty much drove it just a straight line. I don't recall making any turns, but I drove it about five miles down the road. And I kind of in my, you know, was definitely, you know, i had several... Uh, several alcoholic beverages, I kind of came to my senses. It was sort of the equivalent of a cold shower. I suddenly realized... <laughs> what
0: the hell am I going to do with this? I stole exactly. a
1: bus. Right, exactly. I can't... I don't know how to turn this thing. I'm not even sure exactly how to stop it. So I kind of I sobered up really quickly, and I parked the thing in the median of the highway. I just, You're on a highway, I was on, I forget what route it was, Route 7, Route 4, uh-huh. coming out of Rutland, Vermont. Uh-huh. And I parked the thing in the grass median in the center. In the middle. In the middle. And not knowing, I had been probably driving from, you know, what I heard afterwards. I think I had been driving probably around 10 miles an hour. I, uh-huh. was, I wasn't speeding in this thing, but it,
0: you know. Super slow for the highway. Super but it is was late at night.
1: And slow enough for an accumulation of four or five police cars without their lights on. Uh, to be slowly trailing us from behind and uh, oh,
0: so as soon as you stop and get out of the bus they're right there
1: except that I walked out of the bus uh, and went forward around the front of the bus and as, as I was getting out my friends not realizing what was happening at all and they hadn't had the same cold shower realization that they better get out of the bus like I had and they stayed in the bus and were still monkeying around trying to get it started again I had turned off the key so a police car had parked itself, um, pressing the front of the car up against the door so that none of the other guys could get out. But they didn't see that I had walked around the front. huh And I just sort of staggered the five miles back to where I was staying. But anyway, the point of the story is not what a fabulous bus thief I am.
0: No, no, I know I understand <laughs> that, but I do, I do feel like these stories of adolescent kind of naughtiness is which is what you're trying to say. I didn't
1: get in trouble.
0: It's a pretty spectacular story. I did not story. get in trouble. The police they, knew it
1: was me, that and they I found started. out about you. Did, did they, they come out, to talk of to you? they came and talked to me. There were. You know, it was a big deal. There was a small article about it on the front page of the Rutland Herald newspaper at the time. And
0: what about the other kids? Did they get in trouble? or?
1: They get, there was sort of misdemeanor arrest. I didn't get arrested, but still, I'm just sort of, you know, transposing this story to some of the young men that I've worked with, and there's just no way this wouldn't have led to a
0: detention. That could have been a major. If yeah. you're a person who they've decided is a high, you know, this, this is somebody who we think later is going to be a problem, so we're going to squash them now.
1: Right, and that's what was happening in the '90s before I kind of, you know, turned my career in this direction. Is that there was a decision that was made that adolescents in general, and adolescents of color, committing these kinds of, you know, you know, behavioral infractions along the lines of what I did, which was really just a drunken prank, um, were at risk of becoming major criminals, and we started to lock them up in droves. We started building juvenile prisons like crazy.
0: Do you think if you had done something like that now, now or in that time that we're talking about? I mean, now that,
1: that I'm 51 years. No, no. But if
0: thing. if you if you were that age at the time when you started to get involved doing the work that you do now, being a Caucasian person, you think you would have been you would have gotten away with well, it? I think at, still or?
1: the the culture in white communities is that um, parents are called. And there's a you know a non-adversarial expectation of what that conversation is going to be like. It's like uh-huh. we picked up your son; he did this, and the parents know how to know how to say the right thing, or they're not even necessarily challenged to say the right thing, and you know the issue just goes away. Uh-huh. But you know, for black and brown kids, the issue doesn't go away.
0: They they get the book thrown at them. Yeah,
1: yeah, and there's you know and there's a history to it too. I think it's a different kind of conversation. It's not like you know. Mr. Johansson, you know, we picked up your daughter. She was a little tipsy and, you know, slap on the wrist. It's a very different conversation. It tends to be more aggressively toned. And mm-hmm. I think it's uh, the script is a lot different.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so you're talking about. That being the case, at the time when you got involved, or, or you, the pendulum was already swinging back the other way. I think
1: the pendulum was at its <clears throat> was at its sort of right hand peak and was beginning to come back. and And the work that I did in my in my job at the time at the Vera Institute of Justice was to begin to try to rewrite the script around families and adolescents in situations where there was a kid who was in trouble with mm-hmm. law, so that people would begin to appreciate some of the other factors that we know to be either both driving the situation or to be helpful, Mm -hmm. like to appreciate this is a kid who's been through a lot, or this is a kid who maybe has not had therapy or treatment when they needed it because they couldn't afford it. So we tried to reshape the system to sensitize judges, prosecutors, and build, build a spectrum of options for kids, so that incarceration wasn't the only tool in the toolbox.
0: And did, what did, how did you feel about the result? I mean, obviously, it would be great if you, if you were able to tell a, a kind of specific story, but that might be a, confidentially, a confidential
1: well, violation that, of
0: somebody's privacy. But you must have experienced some great stories of people you were able to help? I think all
1: of us in the field have. There's been tremendous success, and this is true all over the country. There's been a major movement in the last decade to shrink the system of incarcerating adolescents and build up the system of providing alternatives, which means either treatment if you need treatment, or a mentor, or the things that we started out talking about, which are those things like... Maybe you want to be in a band. Maybe you want to try being in a theater company and see if you have a creative streak and work together as a, as an ensemble or be on a sports team. It's those kinds of opportunities that honestly taught me how to be an adult in the world and to mm-hmm. problem solve. And so those are the things that are now seen as alternatives because they're alternatives to the poverty that are, and
0: and those are those are inside of this type of system. It's not only are you you helping the, these young people navigate out of the criminal justice system, but you're also helping them, or the juvenile justice system, you're also helping them get on a path that's going to keep them out and satisfy them.
1: Right, by building up the strength and the connections in the community so that the community can kind of reclaim that kid as opposed to the system. So I think right now you're much more likely as a kid to... uh, get referred by a judge or a prosecutor to a mentoring program or a therapy program than you are to you know getting locked up for a while or something something more punitive and sort of vacant of growth opportunity you're especially in New York City and New York state you're I, I forget what the stats are but when we first started um, Probably I don't know a couple thousand kids per year were getting locked up and sent upstate from New York City, and now Mm -hmm. it's shrunk down to two or three hundred kids a year, of the most serious. Wait, what was that again? Two or three hundred kids a year. So it's a much much smaller percentage of kids that are deemed at high enough risk that really removing them from the community seems Uh like the right thing to do. And even in those cases, there some of the facilities where kids were placed. And I'm using the, the correct euphemisms here. These are little prisons. I've sort of conditioned myself to... So you to say you
0: call it a facility. A facility or you a it. residential
1: center and placement is used. But really it's incarceration. You're not free to go. So yeah. these are places you're sent away, and it's very difficult for your parents to get there. But that's starting to reverse as well. So that if you really have to go somewhere because you did something that, you know, was significant, you hurt somebody, you hurt somebody a second and third time, mm-hmm. and... You know, a judge just can't see fit to just, you know, let you not spend a little time contemplating what you did in a facility like that. Now these facilities are down in New York City, and and, and it's true in a lot of cities and you, where you, you're much closer to home than you were.
0: And I was asking about the the before number, the after number is 300. Kids going now a year
1: well, maybe to be placed
0: or less. And what was the before number that you said?
1: Close to a couple thousand. I know, I was Very tuned in to the annual reports our state agency would put out every year, just because you know a lot of our work was predicated on knowing, knowing the statistics and trying to influence the system on a on a larger scale. Um, not just you know, yeah, we were definitely you know putting clinicians and therapists in the homes of. of families and, and kids, but we were also trying to think of the group of kids as a whole and how to move the system.
0: And how long did you do that job? You were in there for 20-something years, is that right? Uh,
1: I was at the Vera Institute for 13 years, and before that I worked oh, right. in uh, okay. community mental health um, at, a, at a hospital in Washington Heights, which is otherwise known as Spanish Harlem as another uh-huh.
0: And do you have any, from from those 13 years now, are there any of those... Uh, people that were young at the time that have gone on to become doctors and lawyers and come back to be grateful about oh I got, you know I got out of there
1: yeah we made a you know we made a concerted effort at the beginning I mean I, as a director of a, a project. You're also the fundraiser in the public relations, you know, face of these kind of programs. And we made a conscious decision not to use our guys as sort of the, the dog and pony show. And, oh, I didn't mean that yet. But I, uh, the point I'm making is that because of that, we tended not to try to stay in, in touch. And, and mm. the, the, the philosophy of our work was that we kind of swooped in. We didn't try to cultivate a dependence on us as a sort of paternalistic provider of the support and opportunities they needed, that they needed to stay in touch with us forever. It was all about convincing the kids and the families and the communities they had the capacity to turn their lives around. And we just went in there with them and reached consensus on how to hmm. how to kind of tweak, tweak things in their lives a little bit, and then we got out. So... By nature of our philosophy, we tended not to stay in touch. But the answer is yes. The the program that I ran actually hired a former a former client who is now, you know, has a master's degree or college degree, and he is that's now awesome. one, of the, one of the case managers. And he was a client in his teens um, many years ago.
0: Oh, that's awesome! Uh, yeah, it's uh, just when you're listening to you to that answer, made me think that it might be years even before some of the because it was such a light touch the way you're describing it, and it maybe years before these people in adulthood would reflect back and realize that that was even a turning point in their in their lives mm-hmm. yeah. yeah
1: and we weren't we weren't in it to to try to get people to come and come back to us and say you know no no it for you and but that's something you want you do you want that you want to know that you know it's very it's painful for some of the the therapists that we train to do this work to to help them learn that it's not, not about it's not about them and who they are in the story with these with these folks
0: i I did an episode of the podcast where I talked to a friend who 's a comic now. Her name is Ms Pat, and she has a, an amazing story that if people have't if you 're listening now and you haven 't heard it, you should go listen to the Ms Pat episode, and you might like to listen to it in this context. She talked about someone, a teacher that she had when she was a young girl huh? who told her. You know who helped her. Her clothes weren't clean, and she didn't have. You know, she had a bad home life, and this teacher would clean her clothes and and do her hair and fix her up before school so she looked right and told her, you know, you can do, you can mm-hmm. be what you want to be, mm-hmm. and and as an adult lady, you know, she remembers this woman by name, that's but cool. she can't go back and find her right. anyway. But it was it was an example of what you're talking about, and that's kind of what I meant about someone who had not been pursued to come back but someone who just felt like oh i just realized mm-hmm. i need to give you a hug you right. know
1: well certainly I have a lot of that there there were there were kids who uh, continued to especially now with how easy it is to find someone through the internet continue to track me down to give me updates on on how they're doing in their mm-hmm. lives and so there's a certain amount of that but we actually made a concerted effort to not um i mean not, not to be negative in any way, but to try to kind of pump up the other adults in a kid's life. Yeah, yeah To help yeah. the parent be that person to that kid or, or to help them reconnect with a significant adult in a school and to help them find those people in their natural lives, the natural helpers, as opposed to the hired gun helper who they got because the judge referred them to our program kind mm-hmm. of thing. So not to denigrate the, you know, the positive impact we had on them, but we were much more about trying to... Uh, Trying to find those nuggets in a person's life and, and help them discover.
0: Yeah, and to let I love that idea of letting the parents and the other people and the the real people who are really connected yeah, to them take the
1: real the, heroes and the real helpers take and, the
0: role. Yeah, right. um, it just how, now, now we're going to go into opinion, I guess. That's because I wonder sometimes when I hear about the adult criminal justice system and our um, and our drug policies and and also the way race and economics play into our criminal justice system. And this, the statistic that we have a higher per capita percentage of our population incarcerated mm-hmm. in the United States than any other country. Any other country
1: yeah. Like
0: more people, more people than in China yeah. we have mm-hmm. of our population locked up. Mm-hmm. And so these changes in the juvenile justice system, do you see them coming to the adult, the criminal justice system? Or do you see this as part of a solution to that problem,
1: or I think so. It's, I mean, a lot of people ask the question of whether the whether the object lesson from the juvenile the reform of the juvenile justice system is going to have an impact, is going to rub off on the adult criminal justice system, and you know whether the good findings that um, we're seeing from taking a more like a truly more rehabilitative approach. I mean, there's this you know crazy assumption that locking people up in a prison like setting is in any way rehabilitative, with a sort of the, the dearth of resources and learning that happens there it's kind of crazy but really we're starting to at least on the the young person side shifts to something which is much more rehabilitative so the, the question of whether that will just by virtue of you know the statistics look good the cost benefit is looking good whether that will begin to rub off i don't necessarily think that it works that way i think that the the powers at play that have sustained the growth of the criminal of the you know the prison system in the United States.
0: Who, who do you think those powers are? Finish your <laughs> sentence. I'm sorry, but. well, I think
1: that, I think I think it's beginning to soften. I mean, my point is that data and research alone. I mean, the research the research is in this horse is so far out of the barn that it's like you can't even see it in the rearview mirror anymore. That putting someone in prison does not help them to behave better when they come back to the community. It right. makes matters worse. There is nothing that happens in our system that helps people change from someone likely to commit crimes to to less likely.
0: But some of the forces, the B's argument, who I'm going to ask you who they are, <laughs> if you know, the mysterious they, their, are, their counter to that would be, and that's why we have to lock people up forever.
1: Well, I think in the same way that I mentioned that there was kind of a surprise turn away from the charter of the family court toward something like a mini criminal justice system for kids, there was a parallel veering in the adult criminal justice system, too. I think in the 70s, people thought we were moving kind of in the direction of Finland, who has, you know, five people in prison right now. And, and you know, in Europe, you know, people, even people who commit violent crimes, um, the assumption is that we want to help this person return to society. And restore their relationship to the community, and sort of get things right personally, internally, and with society, and to return. And people return much more quickly. I and mean, we have people serving life sentences for you know minor, you know, selling marijuana.
0: Well, that ridiculous three strikes stuff, and, right. and then our our bizarre drug policy about victim, you know, marijuana. So, but but so. So that kind of brings up, who, who are these forces that be? I mean, who okay, are the so, people who want to...
1: So what caused the what caused the veering? I think, you know, in some ways there was, there's been kind of a snowball effect. Um, you know, sentencing law just continued to get kind of tougher and tougher. And it became part of the political public relations machine. If you wanted to be elected you needed to be tough on crime, if you weren't tough on crime and advocated tougher sentencing laws and mandatory minimum sentences, if you weren't a politician willing to stand up and say that the solution to this, even if you knew the research and the data was counter to this kind of logic, that was was what the political machine dictated. If you wanted to succeed in politics... Um, And then it just, it's just taken forever for there to be politicians willing to embrace the reality of the situation and say, there's a better way.
0: Well, to redefine tough on crime. I mean, tough on crime should be, I'm working vigorously to decrease the amount of crime. Not, but tough on crime somehow got defined to, I'm putting all people who, commit crimes into prison, which is actually not tough on crime, because you're creating people who, when they come back out, are going to commit more crimes. Or,
1: or I'm going or or to work vigorously on the issue of unemployment, or I'm going to work vigorously on the issue mm. of resources in urban Which is going to decrease crime. Which is going to decrease crime. I mean, the data on that is indelible, that if you have a college degree, and if you finish high school and get into college and have a vocation, you're significantly less likely to be involved in criminal activity. And it's not just on the preventive side of the equation, if you start out you know with a life veering in the direction of committing some criminal acts and find yourself getting your education act together and getting a job you 're much less like, less likely to to you know, continue to to commit crimes and so I think that there 's been just a, a blindness to those obvious issues and a, a mounting research evidence that the way to prevent crime and, and also you know, an amnesia to the fact that 90% of people who go into prison come home. It's you know, it's like you're not just banishing people forever. They come home. They come home older, without skills, with the stigma of prison, unable to get um, you know, Pell grants for college. Um, we set people up to you know, have a, a, a much higher likelihood of continuing to make, commit crimes. Mm-hmm. We've built a system. To, to increase the likelihood that people will, you know, the term of art in, in the field is recidivate, which yeah. means to, like, commit crime again and go back into a, one of these settings. So, so that's been one thing. It's really the political machine and the public relations. We just got this thing that just got out of everybody's control. Even, I don't think it was really right, if you read anything about Rockefeller's intention, I don't think it was his intent to associate his name with the most punitive, mandatory sentencing policies in the world. I don't think he that's really where his head was at,
0: right, but there are money there are moneyed lobbies and like I mean there are politically savvy people who just use this as a way to like, hey, if you're trying to institute this reform, we're going to attack you to get our candidate elected by just using this as a as a as a lever issue, mm-hmm. but then also there are there are interests that want more people to be locked up. Well
1: sure, we have a highly privatized prison system here in the United States, and you know I think with all due respect to the you know the good citizens who staff the prisons upstate there's a vigorous lobby among the unions against shutting down prisons um, and what we're basically talking about in our reform conversation she- here is the downsizing of the American prison system or the right sizing yeah. so that we have greater opportunity in the community and sentencing laws that allow people more chances to get their shit together without throwing their lives away. So,
0: but you're up against the prison lobby, which is the staff of the prisons, and you're also up against the corporate the management interests well, of unions. the prisons. I wouldn't yeah. say
1: it's the staffs.
0: The staffs. Well, right, no, I mean, but they're unions. They're representative right. of the and, people and, who you work. You know, there.
1: I'm not against. I'm not against you. I mean, It's going to sound like I'm a, an anti-union person, but it's. But people get at cross purposes with themselves. You you don't want your your union members to be unemployed and you argue against the closing of a prison without thinking what that means
0: and i was only i only meant to say that it's not just coming from the unions it's also coming from the managements the the entity that's profiting because Mm -hmm. it's not the government it's not the you can't just say the government can make this decision now the government has outsourced this to these private corporations who these private corporations see it as a threat to their bottom line if you close the prison.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, and I'm not an expert on this. There you know certainly those that are, but you know,
0: the... <laughs> well, no. <laughs> but the... Let me let me just back up, Evan, because you haven't listened to the podcast no, it's all. You know,
1: it's all just it's all like us. <laughs> it's chatting. all
0: people who are my friends who have some insight into something, and we could have just as easily been <laughs> having a conversation about your favorite kind of scotch, and we could switch well, to let's that. Do that. Yeah.
1: Do you have any scotch here?
0: I wish I did. You know, I haven't done many drinky podcasts. <laughs> I just. Do you want to? Uh, should we wrap up? Do, yeah, did did I interrupt you about the prison thing?
1: Oh no, I was just going to say. That the you know the other the other crazy thing about the lobby is that the lobbyists got involved in talking about sentencing law, which, I mean, I can see being a businessman. If you you run a restaurant, you want your tables filled. You run a prison, you want your beds filled. The way you do that is you you know you know one way that that has been done is to get into the debate about what kind of sentencing laws we ought to have, and it just seems you know anyway they're not they're not really it looking seems like out a little for bit the... of an antitrust issue to me.
0: Well, and they're not looking out for society. It's like you've got, they're looking out for their own bottom line. And so now you've got them meddling into our political. Right. System.
1: Now can let's I, can talk. I, can I plug my new prison that I've opened? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've been, you know, I have a great idea for a TV show based on a, anybody, but I don't want to talk. I, <laughs> so I'm in New York right now. As I, that's when I see you all the time, yeah. and I've got a show. My last show is at Gotham tonight, which people know if they've listened to the podcast. And so, talk, let's talk about what we're going to do later.
1: We're going to find a restaurant that's uh-huh. still open on a Sunday night at eleven o'clock when you're done. And we're going to eat? We're going to eat we're going to drink everything they have in the bar.
0: The original plan was a steak, but I don't know if we're going to get steak.
1: Yeah, we'll see. We might go to, uh, can we say the names of particular restaurants?
0: We can do whatever we want. It's the internet, man. Oh, wow. You, you've missed an opportunity to curse this whole time.
1: Fuck. <laughs> we might go to uh, one of my favorite Italian places, Botino in Chelsea.
0: That sounds good to me. And what do you think is your first, are you going to drink prior to <laughs> the show?
1: I'm going to drink. Prior to the show, yeah, so during I'm, the show,
0: so I'm waiting till after funnier, the show. We're a
1: lot funnier when I'm drunk. So,
0: well, that goes for most people. But uh, <laughs> what do you think is going to be your first drink at dinner? I think I'm going to have a martini.
1: A martini. I like a very dry gimlet.
0: Ooh, gimlet. I haven't had a gimlet. I just that roses lime juice is problematic to me nowadays. Just
1: a, just a little bit. You just wave the bottle over the top of the glass.
0: Just a little. A,
1: just show the show the bottle to the glass.
0: Gimlet-y hint of a gimlet. Exactly. All right. Well. Next time we can have A more silly conversation
1: Oh This got really Fucking serious It
0: got super serious Well I asked you About things that I knew That you knew about Because I thought Well that's a way We can engage
1: You got into my passion There sorry about that
0: Yeah Well but we can also Talk about our mutual Okay so next Let's Here's what we can do Because I'm going to See you again I just found out You've accompanied me On several adventures To Jazz Fest Which people who listen To my podcast Know that I love Jazz Fest in New Orleans And so Maybe the next time We'll have a conversation in New Orleans, or about New Orleans. Let's
1: do that in April. Sounds good.
0: April. Okay, sweet. I always like a high-five at the end. All right. Ouch. I know. Thanks, Ev. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Well, ladies and ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for listening to this week's episode. I was really under the gun to get this done, and I really am grateful to my friend Evan ...for being on the show with me. In fact, we did go out later last night... ...which is the night that I had the conversation. Now it's tomorrow to that today... ...which you just listened to... ...which is also the day that I started this podcast. Just FYI, in case you need to know... ...we went out and had some cheeseburgers... ...with also my good friend Bobby Slayton... ...who surprised me at the Gotham Comedy Club last night. So he's going to be on the podcast again too as well. Anyway, thank you to my friend Dr. Evan Elkin... ...for being on the show. Thank you all for listening. And do not forget... Don't give up. There will be plenty of time to give up later. I will talk to you next week, and I will tell you some more stories about whoever I get to sit next to on my flight back to Los Angeles, California, where I live, with my wife and daughter in a house near the sea. That makes it sound a little bit more like a children's story than it actually is, because we're, well, two of us are adults, my daughter is a child, so it is a children's story, in a sense, but... I digress. (laughs) I hesitate to give up on this episode. I'm not giving up, but it is finished. Believe me, almost. It will be finished when I stop talking and then start playing the theme music again. I always like to, uh, just go over things in my mind here at the end and decide, have I covered everything that I wanted to? Is there anything else that I need to tell you? Um, and I have to say, well, I could tell you about the weather, but who cares about the weather? Maybe you do. I got up today. First of all, when I got here, it was a blizzard, uh, Right after I got off the plane with Angela Lansbury, there was a blizzard, snowstorm. It was down to 14 degrees over the weekend. This morning, I'm walking to the place where I'm editing the special 54 degrees, wearing a shirt with a t-shirt under it. That's it. I brought a little sweater to wear back to the hotel. It's probably 10 degrees outside right now. So I have made a small error in my wardrobe plan, and I hope that I don't pay for it with my life. I doubt it. I doubt it. There's plenty of places you can duck into. And who knows? Maybe I'll take a cab. But I'm going to survive. I'm going to make it another week. I hope you make it another week. And I will see you at the nightclub. Thank you. Bye-bye.